Welcome back to Practicing Catholic. Uh, You know, it's been said that those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. In the case of our next guest, though, we learned such fascinating history that we'd love to have her as a repeated guest. Allison Spees, Archives Program Manager for the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, is one of our favorite repeat guests here on Practicing Catholic. Another warm welcome to you, Allison. You know, I was thinking we might need to look into getting you your own theme music. What do you think about that? (laughs) That's a great idea, and thank you for the warm introduction. Yeah, of course. Well, if you have any suggestions for uh, a past honoring, past glorifying theme uh, song, you can let us know. Okay, but well. uh, let's uh, let's just start off. I hear we're we're going to be talking today about something dealing with the Eucharist. Am I right? Yes. So I thought today we would talk about the National Eucharistic Congress, which was held the ninth one for the United States was held here in St. Paul in 1941, uh, so 80 years ago this week. Um, And I'm not Mm. sure a lot of people these days know about it, so I thought it would be fun to look back and talk about what that was. Okay, yeah, all right, so so lead us into it. What's a Eucharistic Congress? What happens? Well, a Eucharistic Congress, generally speaking, is a gathering of clergy, religious, and Catholic faithful to celebrate the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, and it usually involves open-air masses, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, lectures on Eucharistic themes, and other devotional ceremonies. And they're held at multiple levels. So there are international Eucharistic Congresses. There's one coming up in September in Hungary. Then there are national Congresses for individual countries. And there are even diocesan Congresses held at more local levels. And these kind of began as a thing in the 1880s in France, and then other European nations kind of took it up. The first United States National Congress was held in 1901. Um, And the one that we're talking about today is the ninth National Eucharistic Congress for the United States, which was hosted by Archbishop Murray here in the Twin Cities. Wow. Okay. Very good. So that that lays out the groundwork. But uh, yeah, who, who all came to this one in 1941? Well, it was a major event. It's described as one of the most significant and important events of the decade for the Archdiocese. Every bishop in the United States was invited, and about 150 actually attended. Wow. Um, dignitaries from all over the country, um, and in fact from Canada and Mexico. Um, priests, religious, and just Catholic faithful from all over the country came. And in fact, the Minnesota State Board of Tourism sent out a brochure for free um, advertising the joys of Minnesota in summer with the emblem of the Congress on the front to really? invite people to come. And there was a uh, personal representative of the Pope, Cardinal Doherty, who was Archbishop of Philadelphia, and his retinue came to represent, um, they were referred to as the Papal Legate, um, and they came as well. Um, wow. And this was hosted across both St. Paul and Minneapolis. There was some um, chatter about them setting aside their rivalry for the sake of the That's Congress. Nice. Yes. Uh, and so events were hosted at the cathedral and the basilica at both municipal auditoriums in St. Paul and Minneapolis. Wow. The archbishop had rented out the entire St. Paul Hotel to house the visiting bishops. And the papal legate stayed at what was then the Diocesan Teachers College, what we know now as the James J. Hill Mansion. Oh, yeah. um, and the major heart, the hub of this event, 
was the state fairgrounds in St. Paul, which had been completely transformed into what they called the National Eucharistic Center. And can I describe this for you a little bit? Please, yeah. It's kind of amazing to think about. So they they completely transformed the state fairgrounds. Um, there was an oat field at the time just north of the grandstand that had about a half-mile racetrack around it, but otherwise it was just a field. And they entirely cleared it, set up 100,000 feet of benches, and wow. a gorgeous altar in the center with this beautiful Baldkin-style pavilion over the top. There was a pipe organ. Um, what's now the haunted house at the State Fair was huh. a rest cottage. And they even set up a <laughs> field hospital where the International Bazaar is now. Um, and that actually came into use. It was staffed by nurses from St. Joseph's and St. Mary's Hospitals and the Boy Scouts. Uh, and we will talk a little bit more about the field hospital uh, when we talk about some of the significant events. Okay. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. I'll never visit the state fair the same way again. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Wow. And all this was happening. Okay. So this is 1941. Yeah. And that's a that's a fairly centralized location in between St. Paul and Minneapolis. There, there, Indeed. The, the yeah. They picked grounds. it for that reason. Okay. All right. Very good. And it's drawing drawing all these people. Mm-hmm. Hundred thousand feet of benches. Is that what you said? Yes. And that proved to be insufficient. Oh, um, goodness. So I I was looking at some of the programs that came out describing the events that were on schedule, and there's this beautiful paragraph kind of summarizing uh, what the week looked like. And it says, the program features religious ceremonies, civic events, clerical and lay conferences, historical and educational exhibits, youth rallies, literary and musical programs, and offers an opportunity to visit, quote, scenes of enchantment strangely fair, sublime in form and hue. <laughs> Very intriguing advertisement. I guess so. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. All right. So, uh, and uh, maybe you've said this already. I apologize, Allison. But how long did this Eucharistic Congress last? Oh, right. It was from June 22nd to the 26th of 1941. Really? A handful of days. But they yeah, really that's not a lot. lot in. <laughs> yeah, and they made all these arrangements and, I mean, it sounds like just kind of renovations and and uh, construction projects and everything for these few days. I mean, this is, I, I'm thinking like this is almost on Olympic levels here in terms yeah, of preparation. A fair comparison. They had been preparing for two years. Um, and in fact, in a couple of months leading up to the main event, the Archbishop and the chairman for the Congress, who was Monsignor Reardon, went out to the rural deaneries of the archdiocese and held kind of mini congresses that they called Eucharistic Sundays um, that were kind of practice runs. And those events on the weekends drew three to 8,000 people each. Um, And those (laughs) were the small versions of this event. So um, they put a lot of effort into it. And one question that I had was, how did they pay for all of this? Right, yeah, Um, okay. And other Congresses that had been held before were paid by levying a tax on the local clergy and assessing the local parishes of the host diocese, <laughs> which okay. seems a little unfair to Monsignor mm. Reardon, who was setting up the, the planning. Right. And so he came up with this brilliant idea to create this emblem for the Congress, kind of like a, a shield, that they could make into a souvenir pin in silver and sell as a... Uh, a fundraiser. They sold for 50 cents a piece, and the parishes were able to keep five cents commission for everyone sold, and the remaining 45 cents went towards the Congress to defray the costs. And it was such a successful campaign 
that they not only covered all of the costs of the Congress, they raised an additional $42,000. Oh, and goodness. you can, in fact, still buy these emblem pins. They're available on eBay. <laughs> so if anybody really? wants a 1941 Congress pin, they're I'm out there. I'm going there now. I'm going to outbid <laughs> anybody who's on, who's, yeah, right. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, I, and I, I realize in 1941, 50 cents is, is not anything to, you know, to snuff at. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, it's not like it's a huge amount of money either. I mean, right. I, I would think that there could be a lot of the Catholic faithful. I assume a lot of our listeners who would pay maybe 20 bucks for a pin like that in, in order to help, you know, defer the cost. And I think it's a genius move that some of the, that the parish got to keep a, a fraction of that as right? well. Right. I think it was really great. They ended up raising with that and concessions, I think, over $200,000. In 1941. Right. <laughs> oh, gee, wow. That's amazing. Okay, so what you talked about some of the some of the events on the schedule or some of the significant events. Mm, there uh, were you, so many highlights that yeah. it's a little bit hard to choose. Um, <laughs> there was a midnight mass for men only that I uh, think about seventy five thousand attended, and they all held candles. And this was held out um, at the Eucharistic Temple on the State Fairgrounds, and it was said to look just like a starry sky. It was absolutely beautiful. Oh. Um, the women's holy hours were so well attended that they had to turn away about 6,000 people who came up that they didn't have seats for. And they ended up uh, kneeling and standing outside the building and drawing a lot of attention from the public. Um, And that was a really beautiful kind of demonstration, a public demonstration of faith that hadn't been seen before. Um, One of the stars of the show, unfortunately, was the weather. Uh, Mm. It was a record heat week. And there was a mass for children uh, held during the afternoon, and the field hospital came in handy because about 500 children were overcome by the heat and excitement, according to the newspapers, and were collapsing in rows and taken to the Boy Scouts for hydration and emergency treatment. Um, No one was seriously injured. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, that was what was going through my head. (laughs) No, no, no. Don't tell me. Don't tell me there were some serious injuries. No, not at all. But uh, there was some some news headlines about sirens drowning out the music towards the end of the event. Sure. Um, But that was the worst of it, and, and luckily no serious injuries. Um, the culminating event of the entire Congress was this major Eucharistic procession that was held on the last day uh, after morning Mass, and it was a two-mile procession from St. Andrew's Parish in St. Paul to Como Park and then on to the Eucharistic Temple at the fairgrounds, Mm. and it opened with a message directly from the Pope by radio from the Vatican City. Um, But because of the poor weather conditions, almost no one could understand what he was saying over the speakers. Oh, no. The radio signal was crossed, so luckily they had a transcription of it, which was rebroadcast over speakers throughout the day. Um, But the march included, the actual procession was 80,000 people, standing in rows of six to eight people across. And so it went without interruption for about four hours. Um, And if you can try and picture this, everyone was wearing uh, uniforms or colorful costumes. They were carrying banners and flags. Um, All of the women and children had armbands with the Eucharistic Congress emblem on them, and the men carried canes with a pennant on top. Um, the music was really spectacular. Uh, Francis, Father Francis Missia from the St. Paul Seminary had been enlisted to, to be 
be in charge of the music. And there was a choir of over 3,000 people singing at the state fairgrounds, which was then broadcast through speakers that were strung in the trees all along the procession route. Oh, and that was the only music permitted was sacred chants. So there were, even though there were bands that were marching in the procession, they were not carrying instruments. Uh, there was only this sacred music. And there were a, an estimated 170,000 people in attendance as spectators along the route, and they were all silent. So there was this reverent oh um, quietness, but then just the sacred music and this constant stream of the faithful. It was quite spectacular. I'm getting chills just hearing you talk about it. It's, <laughs> Isn't it's that amazing? amazing? Yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, it decided to rain at about 1.30, right when the procession was starting. And it was a heavy, heavy rain. Oh. And so they describe how heads and ha- hats were dampened, costumes were losing shape, and they were even leaching dye out <laughs> into the street because they weren't color fast. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, remarkably, it didn't interrupt anything. The procession went on exactly as planned. Um, mm. Everyone stayed to participate. And the Eucharistic Temple at the end, I mentioned those benches, were packed to capacity. There were, they filled all the benches. They filled the grandstand. People were standing all along the outside of the racetrack. And that entire crowd kneeled in the mud for a silent blessing and stayed until the very end. Um, and the highlight in the historical book that came out about this was the final sentence on it is, no one was trampled when they left. <laughs> so it was a very wow. orderly uh, exit. But um, it seems like a very uh, stunningly uh, stunning demonstration of faith. Can you imagine that, I mean, the witness of that, uh, of of such a huge gathering of people who not only I mean they're they're not doing anything illegal but they're also they're silent in reverence as the Eucharist pass by for them and as, as they kneel in the mud uh-huh. to honor our Lord present in the Blessed Sacrament. It's just well you know I started this whole segment with uh, with that phrase that uh, those who do not, do not learn history are destined to repeat it. Well. Once again, you have you have educated us in history, and I think we want to repeat this. So we only got about a minute remaining, Allison. Okay. But I want to I want to ask you this: that I mean, is there any kind of tie-in that you can see in your own mind between this and then uh, news is starting to get out now about Bishop Cousins and a national Eucharistic revival going on? Yes, yes. So the Catholic Spirit article that came out recently about the national Eucharistic revival that was announced as part of the strategic plan by the USCCB. Our very own Bishop Cousins is on the Evangelization Committee, and they're looking at potentially planning a National Eucharistic Congress for 2024. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, and I've reached out to the Catholic University of America and the USCCB, and nobody else has been able to find evidence of a National Eucharistic Congress held since 1941. So this might be the next one. Oh my goodness. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so fantastic. Allison, man, yeah, let's just uh, let's <laughs> let's have you on next week. No, I uh, I don't I don't have the authority to do that. But Allison, as always, thank you so much for sharing this. I am I am inspired by what could happen here in just a few short years as we look ahead to this National Eucharistic Revival. Inspired by your your telling us of the past, Allison Spees, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be continuing to pray for you. God bless you and all the good work that you do. Thank you so much. Same to you, Patrick. All right. We're heading into another break. When we return, what are the elements that would work well for a family-oriented prayer space in your home? Nancy Benzich from Catholic Sprouts fills us in. Stay with us. Stay with us.